Hello, Michael. Kyle, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, it's great to be back in Maine as well, always. We're pretty proud of our, our state and uh, look forward to having you come up uh, more often. Oh, I look forward to it. Um, whether it's in the winter and all the activities uh, that sound you know so fun that you told me about this morning or in the warmer months and uh, snorkeling. There's and, always something to do in the state of Maine. Uh, and fresh water, because no I've only ever done it in, in the ocean. That's right. But you said the lakes are beautiful it up is. here. It is. It's great fun. When I was thinking about starting this podcast, I had a few different uh, ideas in mind. One was to talk with people who are widely known about their accomplishments and approach to adversity in their lives. Another was to use this platform to give exposure to amazing people that I meet and um, who have inspired me, uh, but who also might not be as widely known as others. And you, Michael, are one of those people uh, because you are not just the perfect example of adapt and overcome, uh, but you have lived more life than most people after being born with no arms. Now, we met last year at an event at the University of Maine, and I didn't know your whole story, but I had a couple of initial thoughts. First, I was struck by your positivity. Uh, second, I was struck by how much better your tie knot looked than mine. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks a lot for that. Uh, and third, I thought, and I've got to know more about this person. And in the year and a half since, uh, what I've come to learn, and especially after spending time with you this morning, has actually taken some time to process because of how uh, truly remarkable it is. Uh, but just to mention a few things, and we'll get more into them later, but a few of the activities that you have excelled at, you drove us here this morning, so right. you drive your own car, and uh, you park better than 99% of the people out there. So <laughs> <laughs> you split wood like a true Mainer. Uh, you played soccer in high school and college. You have been the pitcher for your local softball team and a soccer referee. You have taught snowmobiling canoeing and archery as a main guide, which I'm excited to hear more about because uh, I've learned that it's a very prestigious honor. You are a husband, a dad of children of your own, and you and your wife, Lori, who's lovely, by the way. Thank I you. got to meet her this morning. She's unbelievable. Uh, you have also adopted children over the years. And accomplishments aside, uh, the only thing that I've heard about you since our meeting is how loved, respected, and what a public servant and member of the community you are. Uh, oh, and as we talked about this morning, I think it's awesome and perfectly fitting that when I called you the first time, uh, you were a little late to answer because you were out on your tractor uh, mowing your property. <laughs> Add that to the list. Um, In the rain. In the rain, That's yeah, right. in the rain. And from our conversation this morning, I didn't know these next few points, but I think it's a great way to start out and to expand on things that we've already talked about personally. But first, I would love for you to share um, the example or the story about the child in the mall that 
gets shushed by someone or their parents and what message that really conveys about anything that might be different. Right. Um, well, obviously, um, having no arms has, uh, has led to some interesting situations, but uh, uh, we were discussing the fact that it's not unusual for a little kid to uh, walk uh, along and, and, uh, and uh, turn to his mom or dad and say, hey, look, that, that man doesn't have any arms. And oftentimes I hear a shush, don't, don't say that because you're, you're going to make him feel bad. And uh, I like to point out that he's, he's not going to make me feel bad. I've known that I haven't had any arms for, you know, 60 years. Um, what the person I think is actually saying is, don't say that because that's making me feel uncomfortable or making me feel bad. And it concerns me that the message being passed on to the to the child is that that's a bad thing to talk about. That must be a bad thing to have a disability. And I don't think so. I think that uh, um, we all have challenges in this world. Mine, I don't have any arms. But um, I think it's important, and I've tried all my life, to focus on what abilities I do have rather than the the abilities I don't have. And, and, and Carla, I wanted to start off by telling you how how grateful I am for for your friendship and I, I know that you've had a had a hard road and in uh, and, and your recovery and uh, I think it's absolutely remarkable your selflessness and your determination to uh, to, to move forward and have a positive attitude um, and again focus on uh, uh, what abilities you have in fact the first time I met you you were speaking with the Secretary of Defense uh, Cohen and uh, you'd mentioned about about being in a rehab facility and seeing the uh, difficulties that other people were having. And uh, I had a, a similar experience. Uh, while you and I have had very different different lifestyle lifestyles and um, and experiences, um, I had a a similar experience. I I attended a summer camp as a as a child, and um, I remember I, was, I think I was about eight years old. And uh, my parents told me that they were going to send me to a summer camp and that the children at the summer camp had disabilities. And I was like, why am I going there? Because I don't belong there. Um, all of my life, I think it's important uh, to, for your listeners to know that I grew up in a small community up in northern Maine. There's less than a thousand people in Patton. And um, I, during my youth... I was treated just like all the other members of my family. I come from a large family. I have eight sisters and three brothers. There were 12 of us. I was the seventh of 12 children. And as I pointed out to you earlier, that's not unusual uh, up in northern Maine to have. Uh, there's my, my wife comes from a family of 10. I've known other people who have 13, 15, up to 16 children. Uh, uh, so large Rooster County families are not unusual. But I was, uh, again, the only only one with a disability, and uh, my parents had no knowledge, no background of dealing with anyone who had ever had a disability, but they just believed that I was one of them and one of their other children, and I was going to do exactly the same things that their other children did. So I was expected to pick potatoes during the fall time and I, uh, during harvest time, and I was expected to do the chores and weed the garden and all the things that uh, my my brothers and sisters were required to do. So I, I, I grew up with the belief that I wasn't disabled, uh, with the misconception, really, that I wasn't disabled, that I was 
able to do what all of my brothers and sisters did, able to do what all of my friends did, so I, that meant that I wasn't disabled. And it was only after going to the summer camp that I realized that, um, yes, I do have a disability. That's not a bad thing. It simply means that I can't use one part of my body, so I have to compensate by using other parts of my body. And when you're, when you're in a situation where you're dealing with happy, healthy, productive people, but they aren't able to use their limbs, unable to use their eyes, unable to use their ears, um, unable to speak and communicate or hear, or they, they, they uh, um, unable to do the things that, that uh, oftentimes we find enjoyable, um, you realize just how incredibly fortunate you are that you have the skills and the abilities that you do have. And you'd mentioned when you were in, um, in during your rehab, looking at other people and seeing how fortunate you were. And I think that that's just a, a tremendous message that you pass on. You were saying of, I have a disability, yes, but I have many abilities. That is extremely powerful. And that perspective can help anyone to shift your, your perspective instead of looking at what you don't have to looking at what you do. I'm fortunate that I have the ability, for example, to use my feet and my, and my toes, and, and I have fine motor coordination in my toes so that uh, they work very similar to your fingers. So I type with my feet. I pick up the phone with my feet. I'm able to work in an office and did for 30 years. I, I do, and, and I did office work with my feet. But I also fasten buttons, snap, snap, zip, zippers. I, you know, take care of all my personal hygiene. Um, uh, with with my with my feet, I wash my hair, I brush my teeth, I shave, I uh, I do all those things, but I do them by using my feet, and uh, I was fortunate to have the uh, the sensitivity in my feet. If you drop a dime on the floor, I could pick it up just as quickly and easily as you can, because again, my toes are are very sensitive. I want to go back just a little bit. Uh, long before you could understand or talk about it as a baby and a toddler, you are already adapting to your circumstances. Uh, what is your earliest memory of when you knew that you might be different from other people? And it's amazing that, you know, not throw any jabs, but you not only could do the things of all your brothers and sisters, but as you told me, you could do it better than most of them. And so uh, it's, it's wonderful. And I'm I am sure it was uh, so helpful to give you that foundation of, hey, you can do anything, you know, you you need to uh, around the house or within this family, and we love and support you. But just to yourself personally, you know, when did you start to kind of notice that? I think um, when I became school age was really the first uh, realization that, hey, this um, that things might be different for me than they were for my my, uh, my, my siblings. Um, uh, again, I grew up in a in, in a small community, and um, when I became school age, there was a a, uh, a question of where was I going to go to school? Was I going to go to school at a public school, or was I going to go to a um, a workshop for people with cognitive disabilities? And keep in mind, this is in the 1960s. So this is before the Human Rights Act of 1973, which is a, a law that uh, that um, was for 
people with disabilities to allow um, that required federal agencies or agencies um, that received federal funding to become accessible to and non-discriminatory to people with disabilities. So in, in, as of 1973, you started seeing hospitals and libraries and, uh, and, and universities and schools become more accessible to and non-discriminatory to people with disabilities. And it was well before the public law um, that uh, allowed people with disabilities uh, to go into school, um, PL 94-142 was written in 1975, and that gave children with uh, with uh, disabilities access to the public school systems. Before then, people with disabilities didn't have rights to attend any of these programs or, or any rights at all. Even if they wanted to, even it if was they, up to the even school? Even if they or? wanted to, it was up to the school, and most of the time that didn't happen. Um, if you... Um, if your listeners get a chance and, and they're interested in learning more about people with disabilities and, and the, the civil rights movement, uh, there's a, uh, a, a movie called Crip Camp, uh, C-R-I-P. Uh, I assume it's a, an abbreviation for Crippled Camp that talks about uh, the, the, the movement and, uh, and that happened in the, the uh, 80s and, and 90s of people with disabilities demanding rights and oftentimes you would have people uh, in wheelchairs chaining themselves to uh, in front of public buses and doing a, a sit-in in, in a university in California in order to demand uh, um, equal access and equal rights to the school system. But again, back when I started school, that, that certainly there was none of that. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, that my, my parents Again, my father was a uh, a woodsman. He worked cutting logs all day long. My mother, of course, with 12 kids, stayed home and, and took care of the kids, but had a real strong attitude of um, my, my child with a disability will go to public school because all of my other children went to public school, and that's just the way that it's going to be. So we went to a... Uh, we, there was a school board meeting where the, a decision would be made as to whether or not I would um, go to the public school system or go to a uh, workshop. And uh, I do recall that one of the one you know one of the members saying, "Well, what if the other children te- tease him? You know, how is how is he going to cope?" And uh, my mother simply said, "If he's going to be teased, he better learn to do it now because he's probably going to to uh, to get it all his life." And uh, so he's he's going to have to learn how to take it and how to uh, work his way through it, and uh, a I've, tough but invaluable lesson. Uh, you know, again, just like all the other children, you know. And uh, and your dad was a lumberjack yeah. hanging out in case uh yeah you know anyone got a, got out of line. <laughs> so it, it, uh, it 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 went well. That, that, so it was decided that um, I should um, I I could go to public school, but I wasn't allowed to use my feet. Instead, I would be uh, asked to um, use a um, an artificial limb, a prosthetic, and it was at that about that same time before I started school that um, I was chosen to go to a, a program called Mary Freebed Hospital, which was in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as a rehabil- rehabilitation center for children with disabilities. And um, I'm not sure why for Maine I was sent there instead of to the Shriners Hospital in Massachusetts or, uh, you know, another rehab facility in Boston or New York. But um, I, I was chosen to go there and um, 
the um, made artificial limbs for me, and um, um, I would, as they would progress, they would do certain studies on me, and, and I, each every few months I would be asked to come out there and and give a lecture on what I could do with it, give demonstrations, and they would take movies and pictures, and uh, there were people from all over other nations that would uh, see me use these artificial arms. Uh, the artificial arms were, um, because I don't, I, I was born with no arms, so I, I don't have any stump or, or shoulder. So they would make a cast of my, my, my shoulders, then transfer that to a, um, a, uh, a, a plastic um, shoulder caps, and then they would have hang an artificial arm on it. And the, the first one I remember using was made of, was spring-loaded. It was made of springs. And if I moved, contorted my body in a certain way, the elbow would flex. And if I contorted in, a, in another way, the, the hook would open. And, uh, and uh, the next artificial arm that I used was uh, gas-powered, where I'd actually have compressed air a canister on my back and there were little buttons inside those plastic uh, fiberglass casts that they made for my shoulders so if i moved my my uh my shoulder forward and press that button the elbow would flex if i pushed it back the the elbow would uh, extend and if i there was a button up on top of my shoulder if i pushed it with my again with my shoulder that uh, the hook would open and then if i let it go it would close uh, by way of a, an elastic that was on the that was on the hook and uh then the 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 last arm that uh that I had was had a battery pack and it was electric and uh with again the same the same type of setup but instead of the the compressed air it was a it was a battery pack which was lighter but still very difficult and um yeah back well, I when I was back when I was in school I could remember just feeling exhausted every day and and uh being hot and tired. Back then, schools really worked on um, writing and, mm -hmm. and, and doing both cursive and printing. And we had lined paper and uh, you had to start at a certain point and, and uh, you'd maneuver the pen. And keep in mind, that's a fine motor skill that, yeah. uh, that you're doing. Oh, yeah. Well, I was doing this with my torso because... Uh, you know, obviously the hook in the arm, it 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 just hang hung off my my shoulder. So I was I was writing and doing all of these fine motor skills with my uh, with, with with gross motor skills uh, by by moving my my torso. And I I just remember thinking I could do this so much easier, so much quicker if I just could use my feet. Yeah. But uh, but I, I again was that was just absolutely against the rules that I had to use my uh, my artificial arm. I remember, uh, of course, you had fiberglass on all day long wrapped around your your chest, though so it was very hot and uncomfortable. And um, it was it was only years later that I I, I thought back and and thought, you know, I didn't breathe very much when I was a, ch a child, because when you're when you're doing a fine motor skill. With your shoulders, if you breathe, then that that movement transfers all the yeah. way down to that arm and into that pen. So I had to hold my breath, write out a couple of letters, take a minute and breathe, and then uh, hold my breath again and write out a couple of more letters. And it uh, it it just seemed like it was exhausting. And and um, I I used artificial arms until I was in 
in uh, sixth grade. And then I just said, I'm not wow, doing that. Wow, so I'm, for years yeah, you struggled. Not doing that days. any. I'm not doing that anymore. And uh, by the time I was in sixth grade, nobody cared. And, uh, and, uh, I really, I, and I started really enjoying school at that point and uh, being able to adapt and fit in more easily with all of my classmates uh, when I wasn't wearing that artificial arm. In fact, the first time I was, you'd mentioned uh, baseball, the first time I was ever on television, again, we were 100 miles north of Bangor where all the television stations are, but um, I was, I was, my my brother, my older brother, Ed, uh, was learning to play baseball, and he taught me how to play baseball. I would, uh, I can, I could put a foot on a uh, ball on my foot, and then I could throw it, and I could throw it very hard because it got all the strength of my legs. And so, um, we'd start off with long distance, and he was learning how to how to catch. So I'd throw it way up in the air, and he'd catch it, or I'd throw it really hard at him, and he'd catch it. And after a while, we get closer and closer, so I was able to start actually pitching to him. And uh, then he would throw the, the ball back to me and I'd trap, trap it like a soccer ball, pick it up and put it on my foot again and be able to toss it. And after a while, you could do that very quickly and all in, in, in a very quick motion. So I got to be a a, a, a baseball pitcher. And uh, in uh, junior high school, they started a league and, and I was on one of the teams and, and um, was undefeated. And, no. uh, and people uh, had to love that. Uh, we, I mean, it was a great time. And then, uh, and then uh, somehow uh, the news uh, station uh, heard about it, and they came up and uh, did a did a story on good. this guy who was uh, leading his uh, leading his junior high school league, pitching baseballs with his feet. So it was, it was Get, great getting fun. all the strikeouts. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you for for going through all of that and. A couple of points. The first being had to have been, well, I guess really the first point is anything to do with civil rights and and how we progressed in that way and being tolerant of other people and diverse groups, people with disabilities, people of color. Um, it's just so recent. And and it it came along so much so much later than it should have, and it's very sad and frustrating. But it's so inspiring that that you sat there for years and tried to be a part of the system and to try to use those arms very frustratingly for those that did chain themselves in their wheelchairs to bus stops. And, and true pioneers of helping diverse groups, you know, be a part of the world and society and everyone else. And so, I think many people may not, uh, may not know that story. We, we all hear of the civil rights of, uh, in, in the 1960s uh, that, that, that uh, people pushed through. But again, people with disabilities were not included in those regulations and those laws. Yeah, and, and especially, was, you know, small town Maine, you're 80 miles or so from the closest big city. And before all of these kind of civil rights, disability, and all of these kind of, the, I guess, the progress that was made, it's one thing to have a disability in a city with tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. And it might not be such a rare thing to see someone without arms or without legs or that's paralyzed in a wheelchair. But 
rural Maine is a different story. And it had to have been scary for your parents, but it's so amazing and such a great lesson, you know, for the parents out there that no matter how your child is born, if they're breathing and they're here, you know, they're still a person. And to whatever degree they can, you know, for the most part, things can be adapted and you can overcome. Uh, and it and it is a balance of helping and letting them do it. But to say, you know, even with that fear that I'm sure was there but unspoken, for them to say, no, he's going to go to school like all his brothers and sisters. Right. He's going to figure it out. He will figure it out. Now go pick potatoes and <laughs> go split wood. Right. It's... Um, it's such a, a a shout out, you know, to your parents and for them to stick to the path that they thought was best. Well, and again, I I feel fortunate that I grew up in this in this community, uh, this small community where people could be flexible. Uh, I have have since talked to uh, um, the director, uh, former director of. Uh, welfare community in in a large city. And she said, you know, you would never have been able to go to school if you'd have lived in this city, um, th- you know, th- because people people just wouldn't have uh, been willing to take the time and take and make the effort to uh, allow that to happen. We would put you in a program that uh, that uh, we found suitable and that would that would have been it. But um, instead, I uh, again, did have a chance to go to public school and and fit right and and fit in well too. I was I, I and I can't stress this enough. I was never picked on or abused when I was when I was in school, and it's really remarkable to think about it because I've seen um, people with very minor disabilities or very minor um, 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 facial configurations that. Were, were were terribly ridiculed and teased. Uh, that simply didn't happen to me. I, I went to this. In fact, uh, we used to play football. And I'm, I know that you were a football player in school. When when you played football in Patton out on the playground, we didn't have helmets or pads or anything like that. We were just out there in our in true our main clothes. style. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Where somebody was yelling out numbers, but nobody knew what those numbers meant. And after a while, he'd say hike, and somebody would throw him the ball, and then they would run out. Um, but I can't catch a football. But my friends decided that um, if I had arms and a football was going to hit me in the head or in the chest, that I'd be able to catch it. So they made up a rule that if I ran down the field and they threw the ball to me, if I allowed it to hit me in the head or the chest, that I would have caught it. I'd just yell, I got it. And then even though the ball would be rolling along the ground, I'd start running down the field and a whole bunch of kids come over, try to tackle me. And now that I think about it, I'm not sure it's such a good idea. <laughs> but we had an awful good time doing that. And uh, Oh, that kids, is so heartwarming. Kids will kids will adapt. Kids will allow people yeah. to fit in. And um, as I mentioned, I, I, I played soccer in high school and in college. And uh, even going to other, to other schools and stuff was allowed to fit in just like everybody else and allowed to 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 play and, and was and and never felt any ridicule uh, um, about that except for once I I will let you know that I was I was uh, back in the seventies if if you wanted to insult somebody you would call them a turkey and uh, so we were playing this uh, we were playing this soccer game against the school and they started calling the other kids on 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 our team turkeys you know you're a turkey uh, hey number four you're a turkey hey uh, number 12, you're a turkey. Hey, 
15 is a turkey. No, he's a turkey without wings. And they used to call me a turkey without wings. And it made me mad at the time. But then I, I started to realize, you know what? They're just trying to get me off my game. So I'm going to get right back into it and you know, show them. So They were scared is yeah, what it was. Yeah. But, uh, but that was... You know that was really the 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 one and only time there was ever an issue. And um, again, new new kids would come into school. I, I will let you know that teachers used to comment that the kids that I went to the, the, um, the to school with the, the the my class was considered some of the nicest kids that they'd ever taught. And uh, and. Uh, not only because of me, but I think they just had that that type of personality that they were going to be good, healthy, fun people and allow people to um, to fit in and be nice. We didn't have a lot of cliques or a lot of a lot of gangs or any type of problems like that. Everybody get into um, enjoying everybody else, regardless of what their destination was. Mm-hmm. You know, um, oftentimes if you're college bound, you're in one group. If you're going to shop or going into the military or in another group and so forth. We didn't have that type of thing when we were in school. Everybody just fit in. Yeah, I think that's one of the the great things about small towns. And I, I would say I spent the majority of my life as we moved around as a family living in and growing up in small towns. Um, and, you know, I felt such a strong sense of community. And it sounds like that really played into your journey as well. And I was going to ask you about how the kids treated you. And I was really hoping that um, you hadn't got made fun of. But, you know, at times people are people. Um, but to hear that everyone you know, treated you with love and respect and welcomed you besides the turkey, the turkey (laughs) boy, um, you know, that, that's so good to hear. And I just, and of course, a big part of that comes with how do you feel about yourself as well, you know, and, uh, and very true. And do you, do you feel confident enough in yourself, in your skills, um, understanding that you have gifts that uh, were given to you that, um, that you can understand that, uh, some people just can't understand. Mm-hmm. I always encourage people to never compare their journeys. And, and what you just said is actually a perfect introduction to focus on yourself and the abilities that you do have. So with that said, I always encourage people to never compare their journeys or especially struggles uh, with other people because everyone is living their own journey and we handle our own struggles in our own way in our own time. Uh, so never compare, but in a mutual respect type of way, you and I have both overcome uh, a few physical challenges (laughs) in life. Uh, As you know from reading my book, during my recovery, I had moments of despair and times when I couldn't help but to think that I might never regain the ability to have a quote-unquote normal life, you know, whatever that looks like. But at the time, you know, that that was kind of my thoughts. Um, And you would have been more than entitled to say, why me? Or to give up or to stop adapting every obstacle that that you face in life. 
Did those moments come? And if so, how did you get through them? And you already shared about the prosthetics. You just kept trying and kept trying. Um, and so many things you've shared with me already. Uh, it, it sounds like you're unstoppable, but we all have those moments of hardship. So just to kind of help people maybe approach their own struggles, you know, how, how do you approach struggle in life and how did you get through some of those tough moments? And, and I know what you're saying. Um, and, and, and certainly I had my worries, um, uh, for, you know, and doubts at, at times, you know, was I ever going to get married? Was I ever going to have a girlfriend? Was I ever going to um, go to college? Was I, you know, what was I going to do? What what would I do for an occupation that uh, that would allow me? And as I mentioned to you, my my um, very proud of my big brother uh, Ed, who uh, who uh, you know joined the Marine Corps, and I always thought I'm going to follow. I'm going to follow his footsteps, and I'm going to join the Marine Corps as well. And uh, and uh, I was pretty full of myself to be perfectly honest with you back then. And as I pointed out to you, um, I I, I kind of knew in the back of my head that, oh, geez, you know, there aren't a lot of people with no arms who are, are in the Marine Corps. But I kept thinking, that's just because they haven't seen me and what I can do, you know. And yes. they're gonna they're gonna figure it out, and they and and they're gonna let me in when uh, when 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 they see this kid. But um, but um, I was very fortunate all my life to run into people who um, were willing to motivate me and 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 help me move forward and give me experiences that I'd never uh, have had had I not met them. Um, I, I mentioned my, my, my brother Ed, all of my siblings uh, were like that. They, none of them let me get away with slacking off or not doing anything, um, nor did my parents. But um, when I was in sixth grade, I, uh, a, a new teacher, physical education teacher, came to town. His, uh, his name was Bob Dyer. And, um, and uh, he was an incredible athlete. He was an extraordinary soccer player. And to, and to see him do gymnastics, especially to see him on the trampoline, would, would, would scare me because he would go so high and do so many flips. And I was always afraid that he was going to just going to hurt himself because he was so unbelievable at doing stuff. But uh, he took me under under his ring, wing and uh, really became a mentor uh, to me. And uh, um, he taught me how to play soccer, of course, and that's always been important to me. Um, but he and he was a he was a high school soccer coach at the time as well. But he also taught me how to snowshoe and downhill ski and to roller skate and to roller blade and uh, to ice skate and to cross country ski and to do all of these things that uh, that really opened up a whole new world for me and and and, um, I, and I think it's important that we not make light of the fact that in, especially in Maine recreation is a real important part of one's life because it opens you up not only to having enjoyable times but to meeting and being around all the same people that that do those same sports people that you never encounter never have any any reason to encounter or interact with if you didn't do those same activities and uh, i remember one time um 
he was t- teaching me to cross con- country ski. I don't know if you're coming from the south, he probably not done too much of that. Not but, too um, familiar. <laughs> cross country skiing, you, you're on skis and you and and you you propel yourself really with your poles. And uh, but he was teaching me how to glide, how to how to uh, uh, kick and glide with my just by using my feet and and um, and uh, you can you can skate with uh, with the skis and propel you. But when I was first learning, I was it was cold and it was snowing a little bit. And it was getting dark and it seemed like I would slide ahead two two steps and go back three. And and I just getting and I kept falling down. And finally, I turned to him and said, "I don't like this. I don't think I want to learn how to do it." And he turned to me and said, "You know, you don't ever have to do it again, but you ought to learn how to do it." Because imagine if a group of your friends came up and said, hey, we're going to go cross-country skiing. Do you want to come? He said, you should always have the ability to say, no, I don't want to. But you should never have to say, no, I can't. I don't know how. And um, that was real impactful to me, real important, that I was going to learn how to do all the things that I could learn how to do and then decide what's what's in it for me. So uh, mountain climbing, hiking, swimming, all of that stuff, just archery, riflery, um, all of that stuff been very important in my life. And, uh, you know, I'll I'll, I'll share with you that um, I enjoy doing it, but I also like lying about the big fish that I caught. I like (laughs) lying about the big deer that I shot. Uh, I like, you know, telling stories about... uh, about, uh, the moose that I shot and how, how I had to pretty much crawl up in the, the, the carcass in order to cut the you know the, the windpipe out of it and get the lungs the lungs out of it and stuff and I was an awful mess by the time I got that moose clean you know field dressed and cleaned out. But um, just allows me to fit in with all the other people um, that uh, that do that same sport. Um, snowmobiling is was a, a big part of my life. Yeah, I was gonna ask you about that, which I want to hear more about the main guide also, but yeah, I, I would love for you to share your snowmobiling adventures and specifically uh, because you've adapted everything. I mean, uh, it's just, it's so apparent that you have thought through and came up with a solution for anything and everything in life. Um and to get through, you know, independently and on your own. But on the way here, as you were driving me here and we were talking, uh, you told me about your snowmobiling adventures and uh, how you got that adapted. But it was absolutely fascinating. Well, I was I was fortunate enough. Again, I've, I've all my life I've run into uh, I've run into uh, people who have uh, just gone out of their way to um, help me progress and and, and help me through and. Um, I was working for a uh, when I uh, when I graduated. I went to the University of Maine at Farmington and uh, became a. Uh, 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 I studied rehabilitation, which is is um, a form of social work. So I was I was my my background is in social work, and my minor was in psychology. And you played soccer in college. And I played Let's soccer. Throw that in played there. soccer in college, um, and but then. Um, I started realizing, you know what? Because I, I thought I was quite something when I was in high school, <laughs> but all the guys in college—they're a little bit bigger and they're a little bit faster. And I have to, and you get banged up, and uh, 
and uh, you hurt your knee or hurt your ankle, and they just go to class. Well, I eat with these things, so I have to be careful. So, oh, so, yeah. You know, so I, uh, I, I uh, was was thinking about uh, uh, getting done playing soccer when I was approached by a guy named Mike Thomas, and uh, Mike was a a, a a junior high school principal in Farmington, and uh, he saw me saw me play, and uh, he said. He, he, he approached me one day and said, hey, we need soccer officials. And uh, in order to be a soccer official, you have to pass a physical test and you have to take and you have to take classes and stuff. And, and the classes are in Waterville, which was about 40 miles away. He said, but I go there every week. So I drive, I'd, I'd drive you there and we could travel together and uh, you could become a soccer official. And uh, so I took him up on it, said, well, I was thinking about getting done playing soccer. So I'll 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 become a soccer official, and I just had a wonderful, wonderful experience um, uh, as being. A, I was a I was a pretty good soccer player, but I was a great soccer official. I want you to know, and uh, became president of the Eastern Maine Board of Soccer Officials, and uh, and uh, uh, traveled all over the state of Maine. You know, ref, refereeing. Uh, uh, junior high school and high school and college games and uh, had a grand time. But as I as I mentioned, one of one of my biggest struggles there was being able to to hang on to the whistle because I'd hang a hang a whistle on my uh, around my neck on a lanyard, and then as most people would reach down with their hand and 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 pick it up and put it in their mouth and blow the whistle, but I couldn't do that. And I didn't have to, I knew I wasn't going to have time to take my shoe off, reach down, pick the whistle up with my with my feet, put it in my mouth, blow the whistle, and then by that time everybody'd be halfway down the field and forget all about what actually happened. So I I I, I had to think about how I was going to do that. And I came up with um a UHF antenna on a uh, on a television. There used to be a, a round circular um, uh, antenna that you could put on uh, on on your uh, television as a. Uh, and I'm aging myself as I tell you this. <laughs> and so I, I I took that off, and I I, I had a friend help me solder a metal whistle to the edge of that uh, that circular ring, so I, it would rest on, around my neck and my shoulder. So all I have to do is pick my shoulder up and reach down, and that whistle would be right in front of my lips, and I'd be able to blow it, and uh, and again very very quickly, and off I could go again. So that was uh, that was a uh, a way to 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 get around an obstacle that I ran into. And I do that all the time. I just come up with uh, simple devices, simple uh, uh, things that I can use that uh, allow me to get by and do the thing that I have to, that, that I have to do. Well, it's just such incredible examples of the human spirit and where there's a will, there's a way. And another thing that you told me that you had adapted, and I was thinking that, you know, some advanced occupational therapy company created them. But you were telling me about your getting dressed process in the morning and the hooks on your wall. Right. Which anyone listening has already thought of what I'm about to say, but in case not, you know, as we're continuing to talk, think about all of the activities that you have on your calendar or schedule for the day or week or trips this year and think about everything you do having to do it 
with no arms. So with that said, uh, if you don't mind, could you go into that process and how you figured, again, I mean, you've, you've done so much that it keeps getting me off track because I want to talk about everything. But I think that's just important to for people to think like, you know, when you wake up in the mornings, if you're more healthy than not, if you have arms or if you have enough just to get by, that life isn't so bad and you can get up and no matter what you face, you can still adapt and overcome and you can still have a positive, you know, go get it type of attitude. Well, and, and as we discussed earlier, the world is not made for me or people like me. The world is made for people who can use all the parts of their body. Um, if if I if I if the world were made for me, there wouldn't be any such thing as buttons. Everybody would wear polo shirts. Nobody would 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 uh, wear belts or ties. Um, hey, wear without buttons sounds good to yeah, me. <laughs> nobody would nobody would tie their shoes. Everybody would wear slip on shoes. You know, all of that stuff would be. Uh, be, be by the wayside, but uh, the world uh, the world was not designed by me, and so I have to uh, I you have to make adaptations uh, to allow me to to, to fit in. So um, uh, when I get up in the morning, I fasten my I fasten my shirt, I button my shirt before I ever put it on, and then I pick it up with my head and I throw it over my head and slide it down with my feet, and then I have my shirt on. Um, my pants they look like your pants. But as I as I pointed out, they're not really like your pants because I have a what's called a sand knit waistband in my pants. So the I, I I put my shirt on, and that's after I've washed my hair by putting shampoo on my on 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 my toes and scrubbing it into my head and uh, pick my uh, pick my razor up my, my and 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 shave myself with my feet and uh, and uh, use my toothbrush to brush my teeth with my feet, um, that, uh, but I put my shirt on and then I have a, a strap that's about four inches wide and it's, it's, uh, it's uh, very, very flexible. It's like a big rubber band and I slide it down over my shirt and then I grab my pants and I uh, put one leg through the one, one, uh, one hole, one f- leg through the other hole and by wiggling and twisting enough, I can get them up to just about midway up my thighs. And uh, but then I'm stuck; I, I can't get them up any further. And I, you know, certainly could ask my wife, or I certainly could ask for help. But uh, oftentimes I'm out on the road like you, all by myself, and I I have to be able to do this. So I uh, I, I have a hook, just like a bicycle hook. Hook, uh, or a hook that you would hang in your garage, or that you just grab from the hardware store. That I grab from the <laughs> hardware store, and, um, and and it's on the side of the wall, and um, about hip high. And I walk up, and I I hook my belt loop in that hook, and I scooch down on one side, and then I hook it on the other side, and scooch down again, and that's how I get pull my pants up every every day. And I, I used to challenge kids to figure out. Why did I put that rubber strap around my, uh, you know, over my shirt and around my waist? Why did I do that? I failed this test, everyone. So <laughs> it's okay if you if you can't imagine why. And and for the, for those listeners, I did that because when I scooch down, I wouldn't be able to keep my shirt tucked in if I didn't have that that uh, rubber band because the end of the shirt would ride up and uh, ride outside my pants. But by putting that uh, that elastic band around my waist, I'm able to. Uh, I'm able to 
keep my shirt tucked in. And uh, so that is how I uh, I get dressed every every morning. And uh, some uh, um, sometimes when I'm on the road, I realized I, I realized that hey, I'm going to a I'm going to a hotel, and they may not have a anything that was made of wood for me to screw that that hook into. How am I going to do that? And I was starting to panic that I was going to have a have a trip and I wouldn't be able um, to get my pants on. So uh, I come up with a I come up with a, a, a device. I had a friend take those same metal hooks and hook them onto a big a big clamp, uh, much like again you'd get in a hardware store. And so now I can go in and I can hook that clamp onto the side of a table or the side of a door or the opening of a wall. And I hook that clamp on and then I have those, uh, those hooks on the wall without damaging the, without damaging the wall or having to screw the, the screw into a piece of wood or a door or something like that. So just, uh, again, little challenges that you run into from time to time. You have to figure out a way to, to, uh, to get around them. Um, oftentimes, I'd uh, I'd have children. Well, you'd mention, for example, not to not to have your, you know, not not to have somebody else try to, uh, you know, uh, d- deflect disabilities onto you. Um, but I would, uh, I think it's important to realize that yes, I do all those things. That doesn't mean that everybody that uh, that doesn't have any arms can, you know, do the. Do the same things would want to do the same things but i used to challenge children just to take on smaller disabilities to find out how the world is it made for you for example try to button a button without using your thumbs or try to tie your shoe only using one hand mm-hmm. and you realize the time and the effort that it takes to do those those types of things and yet people with disabilities do them all the time and of course the more you do it the better you get at it and the faster you get at it but yeah um, that's that is a great point and very thought provoking for those that have never really put themselves in someone's shoes with a disability but you know I'll say just one of I guess the challenges that I face and a very scary moment when I'm on the road by myself is when I accidentally forget to pack my button hook which is a little tool you probably I are have, aware. But, I definitely have buttons. But hooks. usually anybody that knows me that's seen it before, you know, my friends. And when my wife and I started dating, it's pretty much across the board, like, what the heck is that thing? Yeah. Uh, but you put it through the buttonhole of your shirt, and and this allows you to button a, a button up or and a shirt with just one hand or one arm. But you put it through the buttonhole, you hook the button, and then you pull it through. And, but when I don't have that, you know, I have to set aside a solid 20 minutes right. earlier to wake up, to be out of the shower, to start getting ready. So because I have to now manually button those buttons on the front of my shirt. And I won't say it's impossible to get the ones on my sleeves button, uh, but it can be very time consuming and frustrating. So usually I just go uh, find some uh, innocent hotel staffer and right. say, uh, hey, my hands are a little busted up. Can you help me out here? And everyone's, you know, all, usually always great. Yeah, it's... Uh, well, I, I think that's a good point that you're making too because there's, uh, many people have a misconception that people with disabilities don't want help 
Uh, it'll make them feel bad or make them feel inferior if you offer to help them. I've never found that to be true. I'm as lazy as anybody else. And if somebody's willing to, uh, when I'm out pumping gas, if somebody comes up and, and, uh, and, uh, asks if I want some help and so forth, I'm likely to accept. I mean, sometimes I say, no, I think I'm all set. But, uh, other times it's like, yeah, if you don't mind, that'd be great. I, I appreciate it. So. Yeah, that is a great point. But and um, I think what happens is that people, um, people get frustrated when people, um, start doing it for them without asking whether they want help or not. Because, mm-hmm. um, in other words, I know that you can't do this. Let me, uh, let me do it for you. And, uh, so it's, I think it's important just to, to, to ask, but I think it's also important for people with disabilities to accept, uh, assistance and, uh, and to be good natured and, uh, and to be gracious about it. Yeah. Very well said. And, um, also just for me and I think anyone, you know, everything is a balance and you have to weigh, you know, if something's going to take you a half hour and by the end of it, you're going to be sweating Sweat, and yeah. frustrated and, and, and completely over it. And now I'm, com- you know, completely out of sync for the remarks I was wanting to make and the focus that I did have. Uh, yeah, you know, why not? What happened happened. I might need a little bit of help and good people, you know, like to help. So I think it's totally fine, but. Uh, I've never thought, I, even though I said it, I've never really thought about it that way. But I appreciate you recognizing that. I think that uh, I, I'd, I'd forgotten about uh, about butt hooks. You see, I retired uh, last year, so I don't have to wear ties anymore. Oh, uh, already so can, getting rusty on me, Michael. I can, I, can, <laughs> I, can, I can I can fasten buttons by using my feet and throw it over my head, and, and but I could never do the top, you know, the top. Uh, the, the oh, top two buttons on the on dreaded my top two yeah. buttons. Oh, and, I know. And to wear a tie, you have to you have to button those. Well, I don't wear ties anymore because I'm retired, and I'm I've swore that I'm never going to wear a, a tie ever again. So I love it. Uh, one more point about all of this. So you're right. There is a difference in helping out and helping out because you're assuming that someone can't do it, and in the hospital. There was a lot of long, frustrating days as, you know, after you get injured and something happens, you want to regain your independence. And a lot of times that comes much slower than you would like. So my mom in the beginning was brushing my teeth and doing pretty much everything for me. And at that point, I really couldn't do it. But now I'm all healed up and I can do almost everything but I definitely still pull the uh, I'm injured card. So I'll say, uh, hey, mom or my wife, uh, you know, I'm injured. So can you bring me that tub of ice cream from the freezer? <laughs> I say, no, nah, that card doesn't work anymore. <laughs> Again, a benefit of coming from a, from a large family is I couldn't do that because nobody had time to do that. You know, that to, to uh, hey, hey, will you, uh, will you do this? do this for me now i've got my own stuff to do i'll do it myself when you're in a large family and you get to a the dinner table you better be able to fight for 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 what you uh, want what yeah. you need you know uh-huh. and 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 defend yourself and that's just how we we grew up uh in in, in my family anyway is that uh, you take care of yourself and i'll take care of myself and um and um if you don't know how to do it you better learn real fast so, yeah and just and and on a side note talking about physical challenges i am in complete awe of your mother and 
you know, these women in Maine and, and, you know, more somewhat older times of being able to have 10, 12. You told me you know a family with 16 children. I mean, you know, a mother's love will never be able to fully be articulated. But, But to just, and as a guy, I can't even imagine, but to just think about the birth process aside, to think about, you know, for nine months, you're going through carrying this child and then you do it again and again and you have this massive family that carries on. I mean, that is such... That and the is work just, and the time. Can you imagine feeding a small army every day, three meals a day? You know, it was just it's, it it's just incredible. Exhausting. And how hard your dad worked. Right. I mean, right. what what was his hours and kind of structure of his job? I used to love to go in, into the. Uh, my my father would often take uh, myself and my two younger brothers in in the woods with him on the weekend because he would work. Um, um, usually six days a week in, in, in the woods. So he, he would get up at uh, 4 o'clock in the morning, well before the sun came up. It would be absolutely freezing outside. Uh, but he would take us in and on in uh, on, on the weekends. We would get a chance to go in and travel with him. Uh, so we'd travel into um, into the forest before, it, uh, before the sun came up and get out. And I, I recall he would take a, a can of ether and he'd uh, spray it into... His uh, in the top of his skitter. Uh, familiar with the skitter? It's a no. it's a it's a large tractor with four huge wheels on it, and uh, it um, you 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 cut a tree down, and then you cut all the limbs off it, and then you hook it up to the skitter, and it dra- and then drag, um, you know, usually six or eight trees out of the woods all at one time with the with the skitter and put it in in it. But uh, the engine was so big. Sorry if it's a little loud, everyone. We're in a uh, hotel conference room, and of course they're vacuuming outside. But maybe it'll go away in a second. The engine was so big it wouldn't uh, it wouldn't it wouldn't turn over because it was so cold. Unless you poured ether in it and kind of started the first explosion with the uh, ether gas. And, uh, and what temps are we talking about? Oh, uh, you're talking twenty below on a oh. regular basis. And uh, th- and then he'd light a then he'd light a fire. And uh, my two brothers and I would would uh, sit around the fire all day long, uh, feeding the fire, keeping it going. And he would go in and cut uh, cut trees. And when he came back out with a, uh, they refer to it as a twitch, a, a load of trees, he would oftentimes warm himself just briefly on side of the fire, then crawl back up on the skitter, go back in and do it again. And um, so he he was known for his, you know, just being a very, very hard worker. He was very, very strong, very tough guy. They don't quite make them like they used to. Well, they, as I, as I mentioned, um, and of course, uh, this was back in the in the in the sixties and early seventies, and uh, and the last log drive I believe was in nineteen seventy two, where they would put put logs on the on on the ice in the winter time, and then when the snow melted, they'd open the the dams up and float all the logs down the down the river to uh, the lumber mills. Those are those are tough guys back then. And and uh, I'm assuming he was up before the sun came up, and he worked well into late afternoon. Yes, six days a week. And on on Sundays we would often 
um, you know, that's when he would oftentimes work on his equipment, uh, shopping, shopping his saws, tuning them up, uh, fixing anything on the tractors that that was broken. He was a he was a hardworking guy. No doubt well, about that. You, you got it. But honest. because of that, yeah, he didn't. Um, we, he didn't have a a chance, nor did my mother have a chance to you know drive us to soccer games or or things like that. So we used to hitchhike. Uh, uh, my buddies and I would hitchhike to our, our school was about twelve miles away from uh, from uh, our uh, the town. Our school was about twelve miles away from uh, from the the town that we actually grew up in, uh, the high school. So we would hitchhike back and forth to uh, to uh, soccer practice and soccer games and so forth. That's how we got back and forth uh, to school. So it was different times back then. But uh, again, good times. And hitchhiking even during these negative twenty sometimes, yeah, winters. Most of the time it was soccer season, so it was uh, oh, true. it was probably in the in the yeah forty forty degrees and stuff. But, oh, uh, nice and nice and warm. <laughs> and uh, as I said, growing up in 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 the area was was a great opportunity for me. As was going to the University of Maine. I went to the University of Maine at Farmington, and. Uh, after graduating from college, I was asked to, um, just before graduating from college, and that's always a nervous time for people. You know, you're getting out of college, uh, you have this degree, but what are you going to do? And are you going to be able to find a job? And I was fortunate enough, um, again, when uh, when I was young, I attended this summer camp as a child for children with disabilities. Uh, then I was um, hired to be the recreation director out there. And that's when I became... Uh, certified in archery and riflery and and uh, um, a swimming instructor. I later became a downhill ski instructor. Did all of all of that stuff um, because you had to be certified in order to teach other people how to uh, do those sports. And um, a great opportunity for me because I'd always grown up in northern Maine. It's all basketball. Everybody's everybody's a basketball fanatic, and everybody's. Uh, um, a basketball jock, uh, if if you play, uh, but um, after a while, I realized that oh, gee, there are jocks in in absolutely every sport that there is, including archery and riflery, chess and checkers, and uh, you, uh, you there there golf is a is a big thing that uh, people once they learn those activities, they put their whole heart and soul into uh, in, into doing it, and uh, I had kind of a across the board outlook on all of that stuff and had a great opportunity to do it. One of the things that makes people amazing is just the different passions and, you know, what people truly enjoy doing. But uh, before I forget, before we start to get towards the end here, but um, something cut us off earlier or I took us a different direction, but you got to finish the snowmobile uh, journey. Oh, I'm sorry. Journey. No, no, it's okay. <laughs> so, yes, um, once I got to college, I, I was hired to, by the um, uh, program called the Pine Tree Society, which was the uh, organization that ran the summer camp um, to um, join their staff doing public relations and, 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 and uh, special events fundraising. And w- one of the largest fundraising events we had was uh, uh, the Mean Snowmobile Association and Mean Snowmobile Clubs would get together and put on fundraising events all year long, and then get together and at at the end of the year and and uh, pro- 
and send all that money, which would allow us to allow children to go to our programs without their parents having to pay for them. And uh, a friend of mine, Brian Wiley, and his wife Martha decided that it would be great if I would be able to participate in, um, you know, going on these snowmobile rides with the different clubs. And they asked me if I think, thought that I could ever learn to drive a snowmobile. And I'd, I'd done it a little bit as a kid, but because my, my, my family had a snowmobile, but usually I was riding on the back of it. Um, and uh, I said, well, I, I, you know, I'm sure I would be able to. We'll have to, we'll have to think about that. So they went to the Bombardier Corporation, and uh, the Bombardier Corporation donated a snowmobile and then they hired a company to adapt it so that I could use it. And I, so I get together with this, uh, this um, a modification company called, it was called Champion of Maine at the time. And they modified uh, uh, vehicles for, for people with disabilities, people with quadriplegia or people with uh, paralysis. And, um, and we got together and um, decided of what some what are some of the things that I would need to uh, to do in order to drive my own snowmobile? And snowmobiles at the time, almost none of them had backrests on them. So we we decided we were going to put a backrest on because that would give me some stability. And then we took the throttle and the brake off the the snowmobile handles and replaced them with motorcycle handlebars. Which uh, do do you ride snow uh, motorcycle? I have before, yeah, growing up with dirt bikes you, and you stuff. Twist. You twist, you twist the handle uh-huh. in order to to, um, and and my 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 toes are very strong. My toes are as strong as your fingers, so I could grip the snowmobile um, handle. And if I twisted it, if I twisted my ankle down, the snowmobile would accelerate. If I let it go, the acceleration would slow down, and I could use my left foot um, to. Uh, Break. So as I'm driving down the road, I'm 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 leaning back and I'm in this position, and I can move my feet back and forth to steer it. And <laughs> yes. I, and, but I won't accelerate unless I actually turn my, uh, you know, twist my ankle. And and was uh, the brake a traditional brake? No, the the brake was a, uh, a motorcycle handle you as well. It also. So I turned that okay. as well. And um, at the time, uh, toe socks were just coming out, uh, and uh, they were socks with toes that were that were made that were made into them. And it was a big fad back in the 70s and stuff. And I used to wear them because they worked like, kind of like gloves for me. Um, they weren't particularly warm, but at least they kept uh, my uh, my warm skin from sticking to the metal. And uh, then after a while, I, I had a, a, f- a friend who knitted it, so she actually made socks. But that's, uh, I used those types of socks not only when I was snowmobiling, but also when I, you know, when I was hunting because, you get out there in the cold, uh, cold morning shooting turkey or deer or something like that. That metal on the rifle can be pretty chilly as well. So I, uh, I, uh, I use toe socks for doing that as well. Um, I also wanted to mention, uh, because we mentioned I, uh, I drive. We did a similar thing when I was um, in high school learning to drive. Um, and I don't know how. I don't know how my teachers did this, to be perfectly honest with you, because I, I think that they must have, I think that they must have said, well, we're just going to ask for forgiveness rather than ask for permission, mm-hmm. because um, they modified a vehicle that, um, that the, the school had a vehicle that they, that they used to teach driver education. And they modified that 
so that I could drive it with my feet. But the shop, the shop at the high school kind of welded a, a left-footed gas pedal together. And then we had, I remember they had, there was a hinge off an old barn door and, and uh, a leather strap that uh, one of the teachers, um, uh, Mr. Black, was a driver ed instructor. He, he sat me down one time and said, I know what you have to do, so don't worry about that. You tell me what you can't, you show me what you can do, and then I'm, I'll figure out devices. I'll figure out modifications to do all the things that I know that you need to do. So he came up with, uh, uh, again, the left-footed gas pedal, and uh, we took a, we took a, a, a switch off a, a Mercury Lynx, had a, a switch uh, that ran the, the directional signal, the dimmer switch, and the horn, and it was all on one big, uh, big ball of, uh, of equipment with the stem sticking out of it. And you move that stem back and forth or up and down or pull it back and forth in order to, uh, to run all of that stuff. And he bolted that right on the back of that left-footed gas pedal. So I don't know if you, your listeners can, can understand this, but it was, it was like having my, my, my shoe on, on the left side of the car it was connected to a rod. The rod went up and pressed on, connected on to the regular accelerator of the car. So if I pushed that piece of metal down, the car would accelerate. If I let it go, the car would slow down and I could use my left foot to uh, press the brake. Then that, that ball was on the back with the stem sticking up o- over the top of it. And I'd reach up over the top of it with my toes and I could move that stem to the right and the directional signal would go to the right move it to the left, the directional signal would go to the left, push it down and the horn would go off and pull it back and the dimmer switch would go to high to low or low to high. So, and uh, then I would steer the car with my, with my right foot. And, uh, and again, I don't think that any insurance company ever allowed them to say, oh yeah, that's a good idea, you can do that. <laughs> but uh, but it, it got me around and as I mentioned to you, um, when you took your driver's test, you probably drove up the road or around the block. But I had the commissioner of safety from the main department of transportation in the back seat of my car for the entire state. Yes, and I had a, a state trooper, um, state law enforcement officer in the back seat of my car, and we went on a sixty-mile road test, and we did everything like parallel parking, three-point turns in the middle of the road, emergency braking, backing through cones, um, you know, backing, uh, parking on, on uh, in, in straight parking lots and on curved parking lots. And we, you know, how to back up and how to move forward. And uh, we did everything. It took us all day long to do it. But I tell my wife, some of us get their driver's test when they take the test only once and some of us have to go back for a second time and I got mine the first time so <laughs> I loved it so well I feel like that could have been done in a lot less than 60 miles but uh <laughs> you know I guess they were being thorough being uh, thorough and, and I was it, it had never been done before again back in the 60s this had never been done before mm-hmm. so that I, I they wanted to make certain that uh that uh it was going to work out all right and it and it did and i you know, tens of thousands of miles on my vehicle since that point. Well, you mentioned your wife. Um, I had a chance to visit uh, with you and her at your home earlier today, and she had to go somewhere, so I didn't get to spend as much time as I wanted. So next time. But what has that partnership been like over the years? 
my wife and I were best friends when we were in high school, and um, and it is, I think it's interesting how our 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 love and affection grew for one another because I thought we were just pal. I was kind of dumb when I was a kid. I was yeah, I was too busy chasing wild women, but <laughs> she. My wife will tell you she comes from a large family, and she she said that uh, one time her mom, who was um, both of her parents are just wonderful, wonderful people, um, but her mom was was driving her to the grocery store in in in, in Patton one day and commented, "Oh look, there's that 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 little noise boy, that the one with no arms." And my wife said that she saw me and said, "I'm going to marry that guy someday," and she was just a little kid. And, what? Uh, yeah, and 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 uh, she swears that it's true, but um, then we 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 became we became buddies when we were in in school. But I thought it was I thought it was just that. I'd, I'd mentioned Bob Dyer, um, that um, my uh, my soccer coach and um, and mentor. Um, we used to go bowling, but Bob always wanted to um, Bob always wanted to to bet. On everything, and he he loved Pepsi, so we always wanted a better Pepsi on everything. <laughs> so we'd 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 go bowling, and uh, yeah, I, I put the ball on my on on these this candle pit bowling, put it on and, and roll it down, and, and I was getting pretty good. And in fact, I was getting almost so good that I could beat him, but not quite. So I kept on losing, and I think I owed him about a case of uh, of Pepsi at the time. <laughs> and uh, finally, one day, he said, "Hey, Mike, watch this." And as I mentioned, he was an incredible athlete. He took he took a candle pin ball in one hand and one in the other, and he threw them at the same time. And the balls went rolling down the 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 uh, the, the alley, and they kissed about halfway through. And then they started spreading apart and went down and knocked down every one of those pins. And I no. said, "You can't do that again." And he did it again. And I what? and that's when I realized, you know what? I'm never going to beat this guy in bowling because he was just letting me get close. He could, you know, he could get a strike every time he wanted to. Um, and he said, you know what I think you ought to do? I think you ought to invite that Robinson girl that uh, that your buddy's with. You ought to invite her over. He said, because uh, I'm going to be able to beat you and you're going to be able to beat her so that she will owe me Pepsi each time and we'll make her pay for <laughs> oh, it. So that's cold-blooded. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that's how uh, that's how we, we started an even closer uh, friendship together. And, uh, and uh, she played... Of course, I played soccer, and she played field hockey, and uh, we ended up working at the same summer camp, uh, the, the the pine tree camp, during the summertime, and then we went to the the same university, the University of Maine at Farmington. She was a again, I was a soccer player, and she was a field hockey player, and um, and uh, we just our relationship grew from there, and uh, she's got a, a wonderful, wonderful family. They've always treated me just extremely well um her uh bob was the best man at uh at uh our wedding and because uh, he was just an incredible guy he's since passed away from from cancer but uh we had some extraordinary times. shot my shot my first moose with bob as i mentioned uh and we were we were i got a moose permit you had to get a permit at the time to shoot a moose and i i got a moose permit and we would drive around all week looking for for moose, and to finally uh, 
saw one and um, dropped it and uh, walked up to it and he said, now the work begins. And he said, I'll hold a leg, but I'm not going to do anything else. So he held one of the legs up and I dressed the moose by taking all the insides out of, you know, uh, skin in it, just um, pulling all the insides out of it, cutting the throat and tying it off, tying the rectum off and pulling it all out and off we went. Gosh, Michael, that is so incredible. And the the story and journey of you and your wife is beautiful. And if y'all aren't meant to be, then I don't know who is. Well, cause... again, we've had a we've had a wonderful life together. Uh, we've in, we enjoy our our home and our property. Uh, we we had two biological children. Then we, in fact, uh, um, I I really got to know Secretary Cohen and Bob Tyra. Uh, uh, be, our relationship together uh, started when uh, my wife and I tried to adopt a, a, a little girl. The, she was from. Uh, California, and she was born with disabilities, and we were we had two biological boys, but wanted a girl, and thought uh, maybe adopting this girl would be, uh, you know, would would be a great uh, addition to our our family. Um, so we we started sending in all the paperwork that it takes to do an interstate adoption, but it just seemed like it was taking forever, and they would lose paperwork and. Uh, and you know, it just was being processed, and a deadline would come up, and and they, you know, it would continue to miss it. And um, I had met uh, then Senator Cohen on on several occasions, just casually, uh, because we would oftentimes speak with uh, to the same groups. Um, I was just absolutely amazed at his ability and his compassion uh, for the people of the state of Maine, and. Um, I, I recall the, the the time I met him uh, more formally. Um, he was the uh, keynote speaker at uh, the each year at the Maine Snowmobile Convention, which is a big convention that they hold at the the end of uh, the sl- sledding um, season. Uh, he he was going to be the keynote, and I had a chance to sit down and speak with him. But getting back to uh, getting back to my story. Um, um, so my wife decided, hey, I wonder if I contacted um, uh, Senator Cohen's office, whether they might be able to help send this paperwork in and get uh, people moving. And uh, she, so she contacted the office. At the time, there was a lady named Judy Cuddy. She was the uh, a caseworker in the office. And I'd, I'd never actually met Judy, but Judy was familiar with me because her sons played soccer, and I was oftentimes the uh, the soccer official for for her children, so we kind of, kind of felt like we had some type of bond be- between that. And uh, so she simply sent the paperwork in and said, "Hey, the senator, Senator Cohen wants you to take care of this." And it was almost instantaneous that uh, we got a call saying, "Hey, come get this little girl. You know that uh, that you've been accept your adoption records have been accepted." And um, did you find out what the delay was from? No. No, no. Just I think, the process. Yeah, and she's been she's been extraordinary. Um, Maria's grown up. She's a college graduate. In fact, uh, she 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 graduated from college. Then she uh, joined the Peace Corps for two years. Went to the Ukraine, and um, and and um, helped with uh, with issues over in the Ukraine. Came back uh, to the United States, and um, 
got her master's degree and now she's working as a master's of social work for a regional hospital in southern Maine. She's married and expecting her first child here within the next week or two. Oh, so congratulations. She's doing, she's doing great and uh, just a tough, tough kid. All my kids are very smart, very dedicated kids. Uh, we also raised a, a sibling group of five foster children as well. So uh, we had... We had two biological boys, we adopted Maria, and then we raised a sibling group of five foster children. It was a, a, a boy and uh, four girls that, uh, that needed a home. They'd had a very, very tough life. And uh, so we were able to welcome them into our home and raise them from the age of eight to the age of 18. And, and uh, there's, we're still mom and dad, and still grandparents to their children. That's amazing. So it sounds like that was a, a great experience. It was a great experience. Eight children. But uh, again, both of us, my wife and I were used to having big families and knowing how big families are supposed to work. So everything worked out well. Hopefully there wasn't too much fighting at the dinner table. But, Not uh, <laughs> <laughs> And so you had mentioned uh, working for at the time, Senator Cohen. Who so I get to I get to know I get I get to know um, um, uh, Senator Cohen at that point, and um, um, the, the they were pleased with the way that the adoption worked out, and uh, and uh, Senator Cohen was running for re-election at the time, so I asked if they could do a campaign if we'd be interested in helping them with a campaign commercial. So my wife and I. Um, um, worked on a campaign commercial for him, and that's when, uh, um, as you know, my friend Bob Tyra, who was um, later the chief of staff for 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 both uh, Senator Cohen and later Secretary of Defense Cohen, and is now uh, co-president of the Cohen Group. Uh, Bob and I worked on the campaign commercial, became best best of friends. Uh, He's a very trusted friend of mine, and uh, and uh, we get to know each other and been best friends ever since. And and so, after the, after that, I was working again. I'd been working for the Pine Tree Society for about thirteen years, and um, uh, one day I was working, but uh, Bob called my 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 house, and this was before cell phones and so forth. He said, "Hey," and I asked Laurie, "Do you think?" Mike would ever be interested in coming to work for us. And Laurie said, well, he's a Democrat. Is that going to be a problem? <laughs> and Bob said, not a problem for us if it's not a problem for him. And so I uh, I um, accepted the job and started working for the United States Senate. And uh, um, um, Senator Cohen later retired uh, and uh, was replaced by Senator Susan Collins, and I worked for her for uh, the rest of my career. And collectively, you worked in that position uh, and within kind of that political arena for 30 years. For 30 years as, as a, uh, as a uh, uh, um, aide to the senator mm -hmm. and handled um, – we, we had specialties in the office, and I handled – many of my specialties were in – uh, military affairs, veterans affairs, um, the Internal Revenue Service. Um, I did most of the work with uh, with scams and the FBI and uh, things of that nature. And can you go a little more into just educating people 
on not just your job, but that process of people, you know, kind of being at their wits end. They explored all other, most people, you know, there's always, uh, there's always the small population that kind of embellish their story or make it up completely. But for the most part, it was good people who were really just looking for help and maybe guidance to get connected with someone that could hopefully solve whatever problem that they had run into. Let me start by saying that both state and federal agencies uh, have some extraordinary people working for them and uh, hardworking people, but both the state and federal government is very, very big, and you're dealing with thousands or tens of thousands of of people every day. So um, it's in important that uh, people have a voice in their government and uh, I believe that uh, that uh, Senator Cohen and Senator Collins um, were really committed to making sure that the people of the Maine had uh, an opportunity to, um, to get their needs met and at least be listened to by the federal agencies that uh, they were involved with in their in their life so um, while there were a million, more than a million people in the in the state of Maine, the senator can't speak with everybody, uh, so they would have our officers there, our our staff there, uh, and we would uh, we would field the calls, um, make a determination as to what the best solution would be, and then work with the state or federal agencies in order to primarily federal agencies, but the senator Senator Collins. Uh, I believe that it was also important whenever possible to help with the state agencies whenever we could as well. So we would uh, contact the, the the agencies just to make certain that uh, that the issue was was defined um, to explain exactly what was going on and uh, to ask uh, that a decision be made based on all the the you know the the, the pertinent facts. So did that uh, was on the on the front line for again 30 years and uh, I, absol- I I absolutely loved it I absolutely enjoyed it it was it was uh, it was almost like detective work for me sorry again everyone oh, shutting the vacuum down but <laughs> you said that uh, you felt like kind of like a detective almost well, every you had day to, you, had, you, had, you had to figure out um, I, again which agencies were involved um, you know what had been done to to that point why there was an issue, why there was a problem, and uh, what were the rules and regulations around that problem. And um, had a, I, I very much enjoyed it. Um, I uh, met some extraordinary people. There are a lot of heroes in the state of Maine, a lot of heroes, both people who worked in the military and uh, but also just people who have really um, worked hard to make their community better and stronger and... Uh, and uh, uh, ease a lot of the difficulties that people have, and uh, so I always enjoyed uh, helping people in the, in that process. Uh, one of my favorite uh, activities was, uh, and it, it, it's a lot of work, but uh, making sure that uh, that our military members got the recognition that they deserve by having medal ceremonies and um, people who would be awarded medals but then never receive them and so forth. We would. Uh, We'd work to make sure that all the paperwork got in and processed and and done correctly, and then have a have a formal ceremony for them. So that was always uh, a, 
a great fun for me, um, just working again with the Internal Revenue Service or with uh, OSHA or with uh, the FAA to make sure that uh, people's needs get met. Always, always enjoyed that, and uh, and uh, always knew that I had the the uh, the backing of uh, of the staff and the senator in order to make sure that uh, people's needs get met. Obviously an important job, and I think people completely understand that it can feel impossible to connect with the right person at times, even if you're just calling a company or, you know, a service that you're paying for, insurance. I mean, you have to wait on hold and then get put in touch and connected with this person and then this person. Uh, but you made a good I point learned, earlier. I learned that nobody cares about Michael Noyes, but everybody cares. Everybody in the federal government cares about Michael Noyes, who's from Senator Collins' office or Senator Cohen's office. It really does make a difference. Uh, they, they, uh, our, our um, congressional members are very respected in the uh, in the federal agencies, and uh, I think people knew that um, that. We just weren't going to give up until, um, you know, the issue was addressed. Sometimes it works out and sometimes it doesn't, depending on what the rules are. But at the very least, people have a voice so people can be heard. And you made an, a really important point earlier that you kind of had to vet how much work someone had done before they reached out to you because you were in a way and your office was kind of like the last resort. Um so I I wanted I'm glad we got into this because I want people to know that there are those local representative offices available and that's what they're for to help the people of the state and constituents but also you know they're not a call anytime you need any little thing hotline it's important to do as much work as you can yourself and as frustrating as it can be when you when you've exhausted all efforts and you've hit that dead end that's when you reach out because again there's a lot of people in every state there's a lot of people in this country hundreds of millions so you know understand that you might think especially from mainstream media nowadays that you know, no one out in the political world or on Capitol Hill is doing anything. But what you're saying is true, that there's good people everywhere that want to help, but also, you know, help them by trying to, and you, just yourself, to see if you can do it, to, you know, do as much work as you can to figure out that problem on your own. I've you always know. likened it, like, to the to, to the military process that... Uh, um, you as a as a marine always knew that your first responsibility is to use your chain of command. So you 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 try to work things out by your first sergeant or the base commander or um, or or you know go far up up the chain of command as you could. But when uh, when that wasn't working out for you, you also should know that you're not alone. That you you always have um, your congressional representatives. In, in your back pocket that uh, that you could pull out and um, and and um, speak with and, and and reach out for help for. Yeah, that's a great point. And we had such a refreshing conversation at your house earlier. Um, and just so everyone knows, 
I stay as far away from discussing politics as possible. <laughs> uh, and unfortunately, it seems almost impossible uh, to do nowadays uh, in a civilized way. So we're not really going to specifically discuss politics, but I just want to uh, a point of our discussion. And that is that I think we both agreed that we have no idea what's happened in the past 10 years or so and how we've got to where we are politically um, and being so divisive as a country, as people, as politicians. And, and this isn't really about anything specific. It's more just reminding people that we're all human beings and it's okay. And that's what makes us unique. And that's what brought our country to what it is today, that a lot of different people who had different viewpoints and approaches to things, whether that's problems or conflict or social injustices, that a lot of people with varying opinions, because not, not two people have the exact same opinion on everything, okay? Um, but people over the course of history in the world came together despite their different beliefs and backgrounds to come to the best solution for humanity and for people and for each other. And that put their egos and opinions and beliefs, you know, not away, but to the side to, to have that civil discussion to propel us forward and make us all better. And, and you talked about this just so perfectly, but uh, this is just a reminder that, that it can be done. And, and, you know, as much as I kind of despise mainstream media because I feel like the majority of the time, if not all of the time, the headlines and the viewership and the numbers are more important than the actual quote-unquote news and what the common person is dealing with or the frustrations that they're going through. And, you know, it's, it's sad and it's almost, uh, it, it almost makes you never want to turn on the news because it's so negative. And also keeping in mind that, again, most people are good people. Most people can sit down and no matter what side of the aisle politically that you're on or whatever the, your belief is on any topic, you know, can sit down and have that civilized discussion. So I understand that the negative is what grabs attention and that's what's portrayed all the time. But again, this is just a reminder that, hey, we might have gotten a little bit off the rails here and it almost seems like it's it's way too sensitive and it's not even worth talking about things with people because you're you're so scared of cancel culture or or not aligning and them viewing you differently and so um you know you would know better than anyone being in that arena for 30 years that people can and have and will continue to work together. We just need to remember, you know, who we are as people in the country. My wife, Carl, my wife and I have been married for 42 years and we don't agree on everything. We really don't. But mm -hmm. I can still love her and respect her. 
and I'm listening to what she has to say, and she will do the same to me. And I think that if um, if we could do that as a society, we'd all be a lot better off, and um, and our society would be a lot stronger today than than um, than it is. Yeah, and all of these uh, quote unquote you know smart people in these high up positions to have such a definitive you know, line drawn in the sand or to have such a stance or viewpoint that it's kind of your way or the highway. What you're really saying is that for the rest of your life, you're not willing to listen to any other viewpoints and you're not willing to grow personally or professionally. And I just think, you know, above all else, that's just, that's sad. I mean, that's, that's potential that you will never reach to become a better or more understanding or tolerable person. Yeah. I, again, I've uh, I've retired, so I don't talk much about politics. But I I I I will let you know that it's always been my thought, and I, I mentioned this earlier that um, the political process is similar to a boxing match, where um, you want an opponent that is up to your standards, up to your capabilities. You debate with that person. You listen to that person and and uh listen to their ideas they listen to your ideas uh let the let let uh, the judges in this case the uh voting public decide but when that bell rings you hug each other and you all work together for what you're supposed to be doing and uh i think that that's um um lost to some extent in 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 our country right now that uh we have to we have to be willing to say okay this is how it's going to be. We're all going to come together. We're all going to work to to make our country strong, and um, and allow all people uh, in our country to have a happy and healthy and productive life. To end on a positive note, is there any? And I mean, this has been too incredible for words. And you've already giving given people more hope and resilience um, than they could ever receive from just figuring out figuring it out on their own. But is there any piece of advice or saying or mantra or anything that you would like to pass on to those listening as they continue on throughout their life? Again, all of my life I've realized that I have had the abilities that I've had because other people have been willing to put forth an effort to to help me and to make me a better, stronger person and to give me experiences that uh, I never would have had in my life had they not been there. And uh, so I'd ask people to think back of their own life and, and, and remember that every time you see somebody who is happy and healthy and independent and productive, that there's been one special person in that person's life who have uh, made them or have helped them along in their journey to to be that the person they are today so it's important that uh that we one reach back and, and thank that individual and two that we be that person for somebody else we could end on a better note that was amazing and thank you so much michael i really appreciate it I'm already looking forward to my next visit and uh, all of the adventures you're going to take me on. That'd be great. But uh, thank you for, you know, everything 
that you've done for everyone else. And I uh, thank you for, you know, just being such a such an example of resilience and hope and overcoming to those listening and to everyone. Uh, thank you for inspiring me. And all right, from Bangor, Maine, thank you for listening, everyone, and see you next time. Perfect.